Hi, everyone. Just before we get going, I want to remind you that everything we talk about and discuss should not be considered as investment advice. The purpose of what we talk about on Catherine Murray Media and Markets on YouTube, as well as Catherine Murray in conversation with on my podcast, should be viewed as informational and entertainment purposes only. Please definitely do your own research, your own homework, and definitely consult an investment professional before making any investment decisions. And also to note, some of us might hold positions in some of the stocks uh, that we discuss. Jeremy, great to be able to catch up with you. I think that there's now more than ever probably significant focus on uh, energy, the price of WTI, and then also, of course, uh, the stock prices, which have been doing very well. Um, So great to be able to catch up with you. And let's just kind of start with that big picture macro view, because even if we went back a year ago, um, I don't think anybody would have seen the rise that we've seen in WTI and therefore also the stock prices as well. So what's your kind of top down thinking these days? Look, it's great to see oil prices where they are now. And I think it's caught everybody off surprise. Uh, even go back a few years ago from 2018, where prices you know, hit their more recent highs. And 2019, they shifted down. 2020, they shifted down. And it's just a lot of fear, I guess, is with all the renewables coming on stream, how long is this going to take? And I think that's the big topic that has been going on for the last um, you know, few years is we've hit peak oil demand, when does peak oil demand come? Is it two years from now? Is it five years? Is it 10 years? And I think this is what's causing a little bit this anxiety where you're seeing the oil prices kind of just generally start to shift down here a little bit more. That's on the demand side of things. Uh, Supply side is equally uh, as worrisome, just what we've seen the dynamics over the last, um, you know, few years here with the shale, but how things can quickly change here over the last, you know, especially the last six months. Okay, so let's pick it up on both sides of that equation then. In terms of demand and the fact that, you know, I think oil, um, the interest in investing in energy and oil stocks has certainly declined over the past number of years. Now it's a different story. Um, And it does go back to peak demand and many people saying that we've already seen that. But then there's also the other side, which is now I think getting a little bit little bit more attention in the media, um, which is that, well, wait a second, the renewables cannot suffice the amount of power and energy that's needed. And therefore, oh, let's look back again at, at oil. So what do you really think in terms of whether or not we've seen uh, peak demand? No, that is the question out there. And it plays into a bit of the supply equation that I'll get to in a sec. But if you look at all the major organizations that come out with forecasts, the IEA, the EIA, every month when they come out with their revisions, it's a little bit, the demand forecast is just a little bit higher and a little bit higher and a little bit higher. And you even go back 10 years ago in terms of the adoption of renewables that the IEA was putting out back in, you know, 2010, 2012, it's the their forecast for renewables and electric vehicles was substantially higher than what actually has happened. Hmm. And every year we see these major revisions back downward. It looks like it's going to be another few more years, another few more years. And I think that's what's surprising, uh, well, especially some investors here, that maybe um, the adoption is going to be a little longer than we all think here. So that's why a lot of these organizations now expect you know, the demand to be above 100 million barrels next year again, uh, you know, almost reaching new highs at the end of next 20, Q4 of 2022. And it's, uh, we all know it's coming at some point, peak oil demand, but where to try and pin that down is becoming a much more difficult 
uh, equation here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and you have all the, you know, more near term things like COVID and that, when does that come out? But where this is really shaping up and what's causing the real supply bump here in commodity prices is you've had a different mind shift with a lot of these management teams. You've had before, wherever you had commodity prices move up, you would have a lot of producers go back and start drilling again, uh, bring on new supply. And the, what's different a little bit this time around is before the conversation was always peak oil supply, now it's peak oil demand. And this fear of peak oil demand is causing a much quicker reaction in peak supply more near term. And as a result, you see these management teams saying, you know what, maybe we shouldn't um, go invest in a new oil project or a new oil sands um, project here. Maybe we just should start paying down some debt. And typically the world would spend about $400 billion on oil and gas investment every year. That's Hmm. still down to $100 billion. So we still aren't uh, recuperating all the lost capital that went into the sector. And with this lack of supply, uh, you're really starting to notice it, which then goes back to the OPEC, where OPEC is saying, you know, if we... um, we could probably keep increasing the supply here in the, or keep the supply limited, let the prices go because there's not this commitment from management teams to suddenly go out and drill a whole bunch of new oil here. So that's the kind of the dynamics that are going on and how long that lasts is anybody's guess, but um, it is a completely different mind frame uh, that management teams have seen. And you see that with a large, lot of the large caps like Exxon, Chevron, a lot of the European majors you have new board members who are much more environmentally conscious as well too, where lots of those, which a lot of the capital budget that would have gone into oil and gas has now gone into renewables. And so you can see, you know, global supply typically falls around 8% a year. And so demand is not falling at that same pace. So this is the dynamics that are at play here today. And those sound pretty powerful. I want to pick up on a couple of points. Um, One is, so if $400 billion in CapEx is essentially what the industry used to spend and we're down to $100 billion, how many years has that been going on? Because when you talk about supply decreasing by about 8%, how, again, how long has that been going on? Because, you know, you aren't seeing uh, the other side of the equation, the the demand decline. So I'm I'm trying to kind of figure out the gap and, and how long it will actually take. Um, to get the supply up and running. I mean, I don't know how able Saudi Arabia is to just kind of turn the spigots back on or not. Uh, it sounds as though the corporations around the world are not going to be doing it. And then, of course, the question then becomes how much can Saudi Arabia um, uh, fill that demand or that supply issue? Right. It's, it's a huge prisoner's dilemma here right now. Who blinks first? And if you look at the strip prices, um, the strip is in deep backwardation here right now. Like oil prices today are $74, but uh, the long-term outlook is has them going down to below 60 again here. And so I think a lot of executives are looking at that saying, uh, it's nice to see the high prices here right now, but maybe we can't invest you know, more capital because look at the, where the strip prices are. But the strip has been an absolute horrible predictor of where future prices actually do go. Hmm. But that still is an important because that's, it drives investment decisions today here. Um, but we've also had the old experience for the last 30 years, wherever you get these high price bumps, um, capital comes in, but at the same time too, Saudi and Russia then suddenly bring on a whole bunch of supply themselves, which then crushes the market. And we've just fallen into that trap just one too many times. So a lot of the management teams are saying, you know what, we're not going to fall into that trap this year. We got to make sure we pay down 
debt uh, start showing some real returns. Maybe they start bringing some capital back in 2022. Maybe it gets pushed out to 2023. But in the meantime, there's this nice balance between everybody globally where it's just, let's just not rock the boat too much and bring on supply here. And everyone's just kind of waiting to see who blinks first at what it comes down right. to. Um, assuming though that the corporations are going to blink first for a while, um, what is Saudi's capacity and or Russia's capacity to increase the supply? How much of the demand will that satisfy in terms of the shortfall that we are seeing? It's, it's a little bit, there's some nuances there because so right now there's about 5 million barrels of spare capacity that could come on from OPEC. You have Iran where those negotiations are still going on. And that's where even the OPEC meeting here this week, they want to see maybe we push out everything and their decisions for one more month to see what kind of sanctions are still going to be on Iran. I know Russia is pushing for more increases. Don't, don't want prices to get away from them. Saudi's still cautious with COVID. So there's all these dynamics that are playing around. Historically, though, spare capacity with OPEC has always been around about 2 million barrels. So you don't need much um, to get down to that level where there's that concern about critical levels here saying just if there was an outage, does OPEC have the ability to come back? Because, you know, what they've started to say is the U.S. shale has been that swing producer, but yeah. type of management teams, maybe not nearly as much as it once thought to be. Mm-hmm. So what is the latest then with respect to shale being able to be a swing producer? What, what do their reserves actually look like? Look, and reserves are, they, they got a lot of reserves, same with Canada, same with a lot of the world. It, there's, there's a lot of oil out there. What it's come down to is your ability to get that cost in the oil out at a cheap price. That's become the new dynamic over the last few years. But now it feels like it's a little bit shifting it's where it's, yes, we can make some good money here at, and be very profitable at these prices. Um, the volatility, though, that we're seeing in the sector, though, has just been almost too great for a lot of investors to come into the stocks. And so that's where these management teams are saying, "Less, we are making some good free cash flow. We need to do uh, something just given the volatility that we don't know how long this will last. So we need to pay off our debt. We need to start showing dividends. And as a result, you're not going to be able to get to the reserves um, as much as you, as you really wanted to. The higher the price goes, obviously more things become valuable and you can go get the reserves. But it's just that desire to go do that quickly is, uh, is not nearly where it once used to be. It's it's interesting, and it would be such a different shift um, uh, mindset for these company managements that would have used that those incremental cash flow dollars to go drill more, but instead they're trying to. It sounds like give back to the shareholders. Correct. Yep, that's that's exactly it. There's been too many years. If you think all the way back to 2014, just how many companies have gone bankrupt, just dealing with the volatility, not being able to show a profit. And a lot of it was just an expansion of infrastructure, paying lots of dollars for what, you know, companies thought was prime acreage. And yeah, there was a lot of um, not good spending decisions that have been done over the last, you know, five, six years, which has really been the kind of the second catalyst to hear that why investors have struggled to come back into these stocks where they're just saying, that's a long time in the, in the in the investment community to trust these management teams that they're going to do the right things this time. And that's why you're still seeing a lot of these investors sit on the sidelines here. Despite, you know, some near-term quarters of some great profits, there's this perception still that they're just going to go spend this um, in the next year here and, and we'll be back in this exact same boat that, that we were before. 
Is there, I mean, we're kind of switching to putting our corporate uh, corporate investment bank hat on for a second here, but it's important because it, it does determine which investors are going to be interested in actually stepping into these stocks, i.e. institutions, which can have massive uh, fund flows, which help the stock price. That's why I'm going down this path for a second here. But um, so with that said, you know, do you think that it is a good idea for energy companies to be paying dividends, just given the fact that they are commodity-oriented companies and there will therefore be volatility. And the last thing you ever want to do is to have to cut your dividend. Yeah, it, it's, and that's, that is a, it's a huge dynamic that a lot of these management teams are trying to face here. Do we pay dividend? A lot of investors require companies to pay dividends. Uh, the volatility, though, has made these dividends very, you know, we introduce them, we have to cut back, we have to eliminate them. And you might as well not pay dividend if that's kind of the volatility you're going to see. So what we're starting to see now is a, company, a lot of companies cut their dividend meaningfully, and now it's bringing them back bit by bit. So it's only going to be you know, 10% of their cash flow. So it's a lot more sustainable than where they've ever been before. So I think that's probably okay, but it's almost just like a token dividend just to meet investment, you know, different funds, investment thresholds to, to be included in those. Got it. Um, and just staying on the uh, supply side for one second, I mean, I think that everyone knows that, you know, Jeff Curry over at Goldman Sachs has been um, vocal in terms of the supply side dynamics, the fact that, you know, we haven't seen CapEx in the industry, in the energy industry for so many years now that therefore, you know, supply is one of the key determinants for these prices going higher. Um, it, and, and maybe for a number of years. Is that is that your base case? Yeah, th that would be similar to our base case as well, too. Like, you know, officially, we do have a higher commodity price deck going out there. I guess I'm, I'm always been a proponent that I don't even like think anybody really knows where oil prices are going to go. There's so many dynamics at play here. But if you look at the supply situation that we're seeing today, uh, you know, how much U.S. supply has dropped off, uh, you know, you're getting news articles talking about Cushing hitting, you know, tank bottoms where I was always talking about tank tops basically in the past. And so these are the dynamics that are at play here right now. And I think that's what's causing a bit of the fear that, and, and, and you look at the supply issue that, you know, it comes out, you know, weekly here that you can see, yeah, at this treadmill, um, oil could go substantially higher here, especially if there is some kind of outage. And so you, you do see the physical market being much more um, concerned about where the supply is here. Ultimately, there, you know, if oil goes to 80, 90, there is going to be uh, new supply coming on stream. How much and how quick is, is still, uh, still up for grabs. So that's where you see these numbers. And it's, uh, it's, it's not out of line, I guess, of what could ha possibly happen. And what about the demand side? Um, I was reading some numbers um, the other week and you know, it seems as though we're 90% back um, to pre-pandemic levels in terms of the demand of oil, which I find very hard to believe. Uh, what, what's, what's your number? Yeah, it's, we're, we're, we're getting there close as well, too. Like, we, you know, we use a lot of, you know, if, if multiple different third-party, um, you know, organizations who look at demand globally in that. And they, uh, you know, they keep revising those numbers ups and, and historical numbers as well, too, saying, you know, maybe we actually used a little bit more last quarter than we, than we thought here. And that's what's the interesting dynamic is, is not so much what the actual forecast is today, but the revisions that we're seeing. And it's, um, 
it's con con continually have moved up here for the last several months, just little by bit by bit by bit, and revisions not only to forecast but historical revisions, which suggests there is more demand being used than I think anyone's kind of realizing here. Yeah, it certainly seems seems that way. I'm not sure where where it's all going, but yeah. uh, but I'm, I'm curious as well. Then um, where does Canada fit into this picture these days? So. Uh, Canada is unique here because the, the news that for Canada is for, for the longest time has always been about our differential, the price that we, and the discount that we get from WTI. And for the last you know, few years, actually even all the way back to 2010 here, there's always been that wider differential than probably what we needed just because of the lack of transportation and, and pipeline capacity. But you look today, you have line three going on, you have Trans Mountain, you know, a year and a couple of years away here still. Um, but a real lack of supply that's happened in the basin in terms of, you know, the same, the same growth dynamics that were, that we saw in the U S we've had that in Canada. Um, but the supply has started to drop off here in Canada as well, too, where we don't have the differential problem that we used to have before. Like right now, Canadian light oil only trades at about a $3 discount to, you know, WTI. So, which is, you know, some of the lowest that we've seen in, you know, the last, you know, decade, I guess, for quite some time. Yeah. And with very little oil sand projects coming on stream, um, with the opening of new capacity and pipelines here, uh, it doesn't look like we're going to have the supply constraints that we used to once have here in Canada. Um, it just, just given the number of these factors and a lot of oil executives here, all, you know, corresponding in Calgary, were just like, you were, you're not going to increase prices, right? You're not going to increase prices or, or increase supply. And there's this dynamic here where we're all very vocal about how much supply we want to bring on, just so we're all aware of how much supply really could potentially be out there. So we don't, you know, crush our, crush the oil, Canadian oil price here once again. Got it. Um, you know, when we think about the Canadian energy industry over the past number of years and the difficulty in terms of getting pipelines built and, you know, some would say the vilification of the industry and, and, you know, international players leaving Canada because it's been so difficult to get projects done. What does that then ultimately mean for Canada's energy industry? And I'm kind of stepping outside of just looking at investments and, and stocks, but really more broadly for Canadians who need to know that this has been a great resource um, for the Canadian economy. Like where, where, where does the energy industry fit right now in Canada's economy? Yeah, I, I don't have the numbers at the top of my head here for relative to the economy, but the it, it is still an important resource, you know, clearly in terms of our, you know, our number one export in terms of value and, and, and different things like that. I think what um, has changed, though, is just where the price of oil is here today and where the costs are. So um, your costs to go drill a well, hypothetically, are down about 50% from where we saw in 20, 2018. So not only do you have, you know, slightly better productivity per well, just given some technology, your well costs have also drawn substantially. And so when you look at the small differential that you are paying for your Canadian oil, you're not getting that big discount that we once used to. Um, this is probably one of the most profitable times that Canadian energy companies are experiencing here, at least in the last, you know, you know, probably 10 years. So sure. the amount of, um, you know, perception from investors looking at this is 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 uh saying okay well how, how do they not go out and go start drilling a lot more but we still haven't seen it with the capital budgets that have been announced and reaffirmed and reaffirmed again 
um, it's just a lot of just debt repayment and just companies saying, you know, we just need to prove to the markets that we're not going to go out and just go spend and create a whole bunch of supply and get the, into the differential problem that we once used to. So it's becoming a more, um, you're starting to see more investors come into to, to the sector and, and maybe some, some other uh, corresponding you know, numbers with that is every quarter we always keep track of institutional funds that have come in and hold Canadian stocks. Um, you know, if you're your reporting issuer, if you run more than $100 million, you have to report your holdings. So we basically track what funds hold Canadian energy stocks and how much um, did they come in. And so last quarter, there's about $124 billion that these investment funds hold of Canadian energy stocks. They bought $9 billion worth of stock last quarter, but two thirds of that came from overseas investors. So mm. it wasn't the Canadian funds buying and Canadian funds only bought about 800 million of that 9 billion. So hardly anything, wow. it was all the overseas companies coming, coming in for, you know, the funds based in, you know, London, Geneva. So it's, it was an interesting dynamic to see it was the foreign investors coming in, not the Canadian based funds that were buying the Canadian stocks this last quarter. Yeah. That is a very interesting. What about U.S. Uh, fund managers? So you're starting to see a little bit pick up more on a percentage basis than Canadian fund investors, um, but it was still very much energy focused. So it was effectively energy focused resource type funds where energy was typically you know a larger portion of um, you know than what the TSX would be. So that's your energy type investors who bought about seventy percent of the Canadian stocks last quarter. So you still don't see the big generalist type pension funds coming into the sector quite yet, which somewhat tells me maybe there's a bit wow. more um, momentum and, and cash sitting on the sidelines that used to be in these stocks, haven't come in back yet. Got it. Um, and we will get to the stocks in a second, but I also want to get your take as well. When we think about investing in energy, you know, you have to make the decision in terms of, do you want um, to have WTI exposure, Brent exposure, gas exposure? Um, so let's talk a little bit about um, some of the, the the uh, opportunities in gas. Um, what, what do you? What does that dynamic look like these days? Yeah, you know what? It's uh, it's always WTI or like it's always oil or gas, oil or gas. We always see that switch back and forth. And for the first time, it seems like we've seen actually both take off here now. So, NYMEX is you know bumping up to you know recent highs here. Like we're we'll probably never get back to the you know I hate saying never, but the five dollar prices that we saw you know a few years ago. But right now it's. Uh, it, the gas prices are at some great prices here right now. And what um, is causing a bit of this is the slowdown that we saw with oil in terms of supply. Uh, you would typically always get a lot of associated gas with that oil well. And as that the, as oil volumes have come off, so has the supply of gas. And then when you look at just some of the dynamics shaping up here right now, um, between what happened in Texas last winter that took a lot of gas out of storage, um, but you have, you know, hydro dams here just with kind of the heat waves going on here this spring have dropped, you know, hydro levels to, you know, I don't know if they're all time lows, but, you know, very, very to, you know, critical points here. Um, and then just with the droughts, there's concern about, you know, forest fires, uh, you know, lack of wind, all the same problems that we saw last year throughout California. And what this is doing is driving gas prices up across, you know, especially in California, but, you know, as a result across, um, you know, North America here as well too. So lack of the supply and the demand with a lot of the renewables not being seemingly able to kind of keep pace with some of the rising demand here that we're seeing. And so um, the demand that we might see in the next couple of months for gas, just again, given the drought situation and the heat, 
Um, do you think that the current price is reflective of that, number one? And number two, are the gassier name stocks reflecting the potential uh, cash flow that they might receive from, from the current demand and the current price? Yeah, I, I would say the gas prices haven't, it really depends. Like it's, it's hard to forecast it's hard to forecast whether next week versus what's going to happen over the course of the summer here. And that's some, that's one of the dynamics that we saw with Texas. There was not one forecast out there that was going to expect for that cold snap to go all the way from the Arctic down to Texas. And, right. and so these unpredictable weather events come and can cause a huge disruption to a lot of the dynamics here. And I think that's one of the volatilities that we see, like we could see, yes, we're supposed to see drought conditions for the summer, maybe it doesn't happen. Like it's just, it's just really hard to know. And so sometimes the prices of gas never always have that, that bit of doubt in it. And so if we do get the drought conditions, yeah, watch for prices to be, you know, quite a bit higher than where we currently are today as it still kind of pricing in this, maybe it just doesn't happen. Um, the perception on the stocks though is almost twofold then because not only do you have the perception for the, for the gas price, but there's just a lot of investors who have just said, I can't deal with the volatility in these stocks here between what's the commodity going to do. I can't forecast the number one thing that, you know, drives revenue and cash flow here. And when I can't do that, how do I even build a model, you know, to submit to the investment committees? And, and it's just, it's a lot of more risk um, aversion as opposed to looking for that. And that's why we've seen energy stocks continue to move higher and higher and higher every month here, as guys have just said, I've been burned so bad on energy stocks over the last six years. I just, I can't see myself buying an energy stock, but you just have bit and bit more people coming onto the sidelines here, coming off the sidelines. Oh, coming off. Yeah. Um, I know, you know, when I think about buying energy stocks, you know, I'm, you know, perhaps more comfortable in many ways with WTI, but I can't ignore the fact that um, some of these more gassier names uh, might have a lot of opportunity, uh, but, but they can be very volatile. I mean, when I worked on Wall Street, I used to cover some of the biggest hedge funds that, uh, you know, that specialize in this area and, and, you know, what it takes to do their job and your job is, um, I, it, it's a lot. So. Uh, and yeah, exactly. And, and that's the thing. You just never know where your blind side is sometimes of yeah. something so, happens. So having said that though, let, let, before, let, let's start with the gassy names. Um, do you think that there are some interesting opportunities that, um, you know, could see some nice upside? A lot of these gas weighted names, I would say, are pricing in dollar seventy-five to two twenty-five ACO prices here still. So still about you know 40 percent below where current spot prices are here for for gas, and it's just the the profitability that these gas wells, the amount of gas that you can drill, um, and the amount of gas that you can get out from drilling a gas well now, is substantially more than what we saw even two years ago and four years ago. And so there's that concern that maybe we just flood the market with a bunch more new gas. It's same kind of the dynamics that we saw with oil. Um, so guys are just, you know, pulling back the reins here a little bit. And as a result, you're seeing investors kind of say the same thing too, is like, at what point do gas prices just go back to this long-term price? And so when you look at this, there's a few multiple different ways you can look at valuation, but um, if you look at just a lot of these gas weighted names, just trade at their, what they call blow down value. So if you were to not do anything and just let the production of your, your company just kind of blow down, um, the, a lot of the names are just trading at that, just that, that value here today. So not paying for any upside in terms of, you know, future growth, future wells, 
Um, and so historically, we'd always see names trade at typically three to four times that blowdown value. But every year as energy stocks have done, we, we get one lower multiple every single year and huh. to the point where we got to this base level. And that's partially why you're seeing a lot of M&A here this, this going on this year as well, too, is companies are saying, you know, it's cheaper to go buy this company here than to go drill a well, because we can just buy these companies just for their blowdown and then get all their inventory and infrastructure essentially for free. Hmm. That's pretty amazing. Um, do you, what does that lead you to believe, though, in, in terms of um, buying some of these stocks today? Which, which ones look interesting? And, and I guess before we even get to that, the, the question is, you know, will there be a catalyst to get the stock prices higher to get that multiple appreciation? Um, will it be their quarterly results? And if so, which metric do you really want to pay most attention to it? Will it be the cash flow? What, what measure of profitability are, are investors in the street going to really pay attention to? Yeah. So it, it's, it's funny because there's so many different, um, so many different investors have so many different, like some guys are looking for dividend increases. Some guys are looking for free cash flow. Some guys are looking for pick your, pick your kind of thing here. But generally, profitability is one of the most important factors. And you can measure that a few different ways, but it still comes down to, you know, are you making money or not? And some of the best companies that you've seen, um, you know, Arc and Trimling would be your two go-to names that I think most investors would look at. Uh, these are names who have, you know, some of the biggest exposures in the Montney, which supplies, you know, the majority of, you know, gas here now for, you know, for Canada. And you can see the acquisitions, you know, Arc bought, you know, seven generations this year. You've seen Trimling, you know, buy a few other companies all throughout Northeast BC. And these companies are becoming very big powerhouses almost in a way to the point where they can almost control the price of gas here in, in, in Canada. Um, you, you're having a little bit more of an oligopoly versus a whole bunch of smaller players. So not only can they keep the costs low, but if you get these you know different dynamics with the gas prices, um, you can shut in your production to make sure you always maintain that, that level of profitability here. So that's a big thing that's changed over the last couple of years, but there's still that doubt from investors saying, is has that really changed here and that's where you're starting to see when i talk about you know energy funds coming back into the market in size you know they bought 80 percent of the, the stock that got bought in energy stocks last year or last quarter um they see that dynamic happening here and i think that's where there there's there's more money to probably to come but what do they what do investors need to see to get the generalists in you need to see it's just going to be quarter another quarter. And more importantly, I think once guys start putting out their 2022 budgets and just saying, oh yeah, your CapEx really isn't moved up all that much. And this company hasn't moved their CapEx up and same with this one and this one and this one. Um, there's going to be some confidence that, you know, maybe we're not going to flood the market here once again. Got it. And, and when do those, when will they release that, that budget, I guess, 2022 will it actually, I don't know when they're, um, yeah, year so yeah, so more and more companies are putting out five-year plans now here as well, too. Um, the official 2022 budgets typically start coming out in November, but there's a lot of, you know, I guess us, us analysts, like we'll be talking to, like we have 2022 forecasts out and, you know, we, you know, we talk to management teams weekly here and and it's just, what are you thinking? What are the dynamics that you're thinking about 2022? What do you need to see to spend this much versus this much? And so we can start to start to build some pretty good, uh, you know, models here and into what 2022 looks like. And there's not a lot of companies, you know, the CapEx budgets do seem higher than 2021, but not nearly matching what the kind of cash flows here at the current prices are, are, are showing here today. 
Got it. And, and just to, so, so tourmaline and arc resources are, are two top gas picks for you. That's right. Okay. Um, and, and it's interesting to talk about the costs declining to the tune of 50% over the past number of years. How is it that they're able to do that? And I know you mentioned technology and I can understand and appreciate that, but that's a pretty dramatic decline. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of, uh, you know, when you have to cut things to the bone here in COVID, when there's a lot of um, uh, just, you know, it's trying to save your company from bankruptcy. It's, it's a real, okay, let's look at everything here. And do we really need this? Do we really need this? Do we really need this? And mm-hmm. there's some, been some big step changes in terms of the way, you know, wells get completed here now where you can put much, a lot more in, like frack intervals into a well. And so you don't need all the tools and different things that you once used to. Your drilling days are down quite a bit. You're putting more wells on a pad as opposed to drilling new rows and power and, and connecting different things. So you start combining all these things together and that's generally what you're seeing. You know, it's not the same for, you know, some guys are seeing, you know, 30% cost reductions. Some are, you know, a lot are seeing that 50%. So it is all over the map, depending on the type of company. But as companies get bigger, merge, you know, they're able to get more pricing um, uh, pressure on the services companies as well, too, guaranteeing work. So there's just a, you know, some, some this, this yeah. industry is getting a lot better, uh, you know, fundamentally in terms of trying to focus on profitability. Understood. Um, shifting focus to, um, to WTI names or WCS, uh, mm-hmm. um, what, what stands out to you in terms of opportunities there? So I think uh, it depends on size you want to go. So Whitecap, I think, would be kind of the one that a lot of guys are looking at, at right now. Whitecap has been aggressive on, you know, buying, you know, quite a few, you know, companies over the last year here just to build up that critical mass in terms of size. So not only with that size, can you go get new term data at much lower rates than what you've seen in the past, like typically around that 2 to 3% yield versus 7 8% in the past. So not only that, but... You get the cost synergies. The thing with uh, Whitecap, though, is if you look at the names that get the multiple expansion, uh, it's the names that typically have you know large resources in place, very profitable economics, and typically those are your Montney names where they have that resource play where you have that lot of that inventory. Whitecap has never been uh, a Montney player. They've been more in the you know Saskatchewan, Alberta place where it's you know individual conventional type wells. But now that they've made their foray into the Montney, um, where other Montney names typically have that multiple expansion to reflect the resource, um, there's reasons why you should start to see Whitecap start to get more of a Montney multiple to reflect this all this inventory that it has than what it, what then what we've seen historically. So its stock has gone up like everybody else, but a lot of it is just on the movement of the commodity price moving up here. Um, none of it is on that expansion of that multiple, and that's where it looks like out of all the names that have kind of moved up, that multiple has somewhat lagged the um, given the new inventory that it has here with this recent with its recent acquisitions. Why wouldn't they be getting that multiple expansion? Why isn't it recognized yet? Is there an execution risk of any sort? So the execution risk, there's always a bit of an execution risk. Uh, given what these guys and how close these acquisitions have been to other key players, it's not so much the risk. The biggest one is uh, when you buy a lot of these companies, there's this, sharehold, this, this share overhang with the, the investors um, from the companies that they bought of when are they going to sell? When are they going to start dumping shares? Is it going to be a slow bleed out? Is it just kind of way on stocks? And that's been the biggest pushback that we've got from investors saying, you know, when has this stock cleared from the, the, from the companies that they bought here? Got it. And what are your thoughts there? 
it's it's hard to know a lot of those guys play that those cards close to their chest and you know but it's it's hard to see how they sell to a company want to take shares instead of cash because they think the shares are underappreciated in, in, a, in a white cap say you could make the same argument with you know tamarack another you know good name here that's done some acquisitions and i think a lot of those companies are expecting those share prices to rise and are waiting for the share price to rise before they sell so it's a bit of a you know horse before the cart type of uh, mentality here got it and just kind of moving up the um uh the market cap size um any other names that stand out to you where there's still some nice opportunity you know you look at you know names like um like enterplus for example you know it, there's it's funny how you always see you know one event really control the dynamics in the in the narrative of a story so here you have Enterplus, Great Wells, all in North uh, North Dakota, the Balkan area, um, making some big acquisitions themselves. But the concern that they would, uh, you know, drain the pipelines coming out of the out, out of the Balkan out of the, the that region there, um, is, it would be kind of a first of its kind. But a lot of guys just say, "Well, great, I don't want to." If they get rid of the pipeline here and are forced to drain, you know, the um, you know Dakota Access pipeline, um, there's concern that. Enterplus wouldn't be able to flow any oil, but that's not really the case though. Like there's a lot of other rail transportation options in there and it's just, it's just dynamics, but you can see how one story on the environment just kind of, you know, gets a name somewhat blackballed almost in a way for investors to invest in it until that, that story or that decision from the courts is, is resolved. And so mm. that's where it's, it's, you, you kind of see those interesting dynamics, but it's, it's important. It would it would affect the price that Enterplus receives by about three dollars or so. But they're still receiving, you know, the amount of oils that's gone like oil's gone up. You know, call it you know ten dollars here in the last month. So the fact that they only receive three dollars less, it's not that big of a deal, kind of thing. Got it. So it sounds as though there is some opportunity there, just um, that, that's unrecognized right now. It's just an over over concern about the pipelines when. It, it's a concern, but it's not nearly the concern that's reflected in this stock. Got it. Um, speaking of pipelines, I just want to ask as well. Um, I mean, this is always a headline news item, uh, but Keystone XL, it doesn't seem as though, you know, I don't know if, if you look at it from a symbolic perspective um, or if it has any impact on how you look at Canada's energy industry. Thoughts there? Yeah, I don't think it's... Like the, it's a symbolic for sure. I think, and I think that's almost what it is in terms of investor sentiment, just thinking, what are we doing here in Canada? It just is too high of a regulatory market for us to invest in. But in terms of what that would have done for Canada, I don't think it was necessarily, like it would, it would have been a nice backup to have, but I don't think you necessarily need it. Like there's a lot, like Enbridge has gone and, you know, made their existing pipelines more efficient with some additives to make oil flow faster. You have line three, Trans Mountain uh, coming on stream. Yet, if you remember back in 2018 when the differential blew out here in Alberta, Alberta went and set up a whole bunch of new railway contracts for rail terminals. So you have a lot more ability to get, um, you know, supply out of the country, uh, especially when a time where you see a lot fewer oil sands projects being approved because, you know, oil sands projects, you know, take five, 10 years from, you know, inception design phase to on production. And I think there's that fear of, you know, going back to the fear of peak oil demand is just causing a lot of these companies to say, maybe let's just not go build anything new here. That's going to 
come on in 10 years because it may like all the men will still be here in 10 years from now. But, you know, if these are 30, 40 year, you know, mine lives, maybe mm-hmm. oil won't be still around in that time frame. So that's what's causing a shift of, you know, a big shift of dynamics and, you know, why you're seeing more and more uh, investors kind of look at these, you know, companies that are more short-term, quick oil, pay off your debt, you know, your wealth, you drill a new wealth, you'll get, you know, 80% of your, you know, the value of that well within the first few years. Like the, the, it's kind of like a mom and pa shop here now where I'm just going to keep on drilling these wells until oil finishes. But if my debt's paid off, I'm just going to enjoy life here for the next, for the next while here. Yeah. Um, just quick question uh, in terms of the purchase of those rail cars and also, of course, the, the money spent on trying to get some of these pipelines built um, from a government perspective. Was there a lot of taxpayer money wasted? You know, it, it seems they've kept a lot of those numbers under wraps. And so I, I like I know there was different guarantees and you just it, how much is a guarantee versus commitments? I know there was a loss with the Alberta railways, how much we spent to get it done um, versus what we ended up offloading those rail contracts for. I don't have numbers off the top of my head here, but there's definitely a cost. But um, the the flip side though, is if you can reduce the the, the volatility and, and the differential that we're seeing in the oil price though, it's probably a worthwhile cost just to make sure we don't see that discount. Because if you look at the way Alberta has their sliding scale royalties here, yeah. um, if you have the current prices that we are seeing today, you know, you're, you're looking at it, you know, just in terms of the, um, you know, it always sounds a little bit different, but, you know, for a lot of the names that are doing conventional wells, you're typically seeing, you know, royalty rates go up to 20, 25% here versus five to 7% that you would have seen over the last few years. So a big, big difference in terms of the take that government's bringing in. And if you didn't have... Um, these egress options to kind of get them off the ground, you maybe still would have had these big differentials, which would have reduced that royalty rate. So it's a bit of a Got it, yeah. answer to it. It's not an easy answer to kind of thing. Yeah. It's a push and a pull. It's um, that's, in that's terms of, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so you, you brought up royalties um, and I think that, you know, we might need to remind viewers um, what that, looks like today um, in, in terms of some of these energy companies with the royalty rates and, and where the opportunities are. Um, I know you have a report on that uh, royalty rates, shipping economics back to royalty companies. So what are royalty companies? Why don't we just start there? So your royalty companies, uh, you know, have a long, long history. This is just going back to when Canada was founded, you know, trying to get settlers back in Canada, out West, will give you a plot of land and you get to own all the mineral rights below it as well too. So fast forward, you know, the, the railway companies started being buy, buy them up and the railway companies got split up um, and it out emerged the royalty companies that owned a lot of the mineral rights. And so mineral, the royalty companies, public and private, own about 10% of the land here in Alberta, Saskatchewan that have the mineral rights. And so um, typically the royalty rate that those royalty companies charge, anybody who wants to drill on their land, is anywhere between 15 to 20%. That's kind of just a flat rate. And what ended up happening here just with the new royalty regime that came into Alberta um, back in 2017 was, was, the, was just to keep it competitive and to get you know guys drilling here in Alberta, the royalty rate was slashed. And so you end up seeing a lot of these oil companies drill on the crown land because of the lower royalty rates. But now that that sliding scale is going higher because of much better oil prices, the differential is much stronger. 
um, you're starting to see a lot of that, uh, that spending go to the royalty companies. And you're just seeing the very initial pickup of that coming onto the royalty type of companies. So it's coming um, and that it's going to take, you know, one or two quarters, you know, for, you know, when the companies typically announce, here's how much drilling happened on our land, but you can start this, you can start to see it in the data and, and talking to different management teams here. So um, what would be some interesting royalty companies to take a look at? And, and with what you just said, what does that actually mean in terms of their revenue and, and profitability? Yeah. So, you know, the two names that we highlighted was Freehold Royalties and Prairie Sky Royalties. And um, both have a little bit of a different nuances, but both have a lot of that, what they call a freehold mineral title land, where you actually own all the mineral, mineral title. Um, and so where, where you're going to start to see is just, um, you know, I'm trying to think of how to best explain it here, but yeah. what, you'll, what you'll see is, you know, company A comes and drills on Prairie Sky's land. And um, if it's a, like a Viking well, they'll pay Prairie Sky you know, 20% of the revenue that comes from that well. So not only is it higher oil price, but um, you're just seeing a lot of these companies shift from drilling on the crown to these royalty companies. And just because the economics suddenly suddenly go in favor of the royalty companies because the royalty rate is, is cheaper versus what you would be paying on the crown hmm. today versus what you saw just a few years ago. So that's where you're going to see a lot more spending come to these royalty companies here over the next year or so, at least uh, as these prices stay high like this. Interesting. And then what does that mean in terms of the individual investor and um, the yield that they can receive? Yeah. So, you know, both Prairie Sky and Freehold cut their dividends pretty hard, but you've already seen Freehold increase its dividend, um, you know, almost 50%. And, you know, they could probably increase, they could probably double their dividend here again, uh, huh. just given the amount of cash flow that they have coming on. So, you know, we suspect that we'll see another dividend bump here with a quarter probably another one with, you know, Q3 results and another one with Q4. Um, just as um, they kind of start to look at all the, the, the production and, and the cash flow that's, that's coming with it. So not only are you seeing more production because more um, third-party operators are drilling on your land, but just also with the higher, with the higher commodity price. Got it. And um, I, I know you wanted to, I think, maybe talk about Tamarack. What, what's the story there? Yeah, so one of the things that we always look for is what drives, um, we, we, did this, we did a study um, a while ago here, but what the number one driver of share price performance is typically a change in your multiple. And this drives about 80% of a stock price movement every single year that, that we've kind of gone back to 2010 and, and looked at that. It's not so much the commodity, it's the change in your multiple. And then we said, okay, well, what drives the change in the multiple? It's not mean reversion or anything it's basically a rate of change of what investors think your future growth is and that's basically for oil and gas companies do you have a new pledge are you doing and completing and drilling a well you know much more efficiently um do you have more you know there's a few different you know things that drive that that rate of change and for tamarack um they've historically been cardium viking type formation operators but the best play that's emerging here in Canada that I think investors are going to start hearing more and more and more about is the Clearwater play. It's this medium grade oil up in Northern Alberta. Um, and you're looking at payout, well payouts within that three months, getting two times payout within two years. It's by far the most economic oil that we've seen in a long, long time here hmm. in, in Canada. And I would even argue this is, you know, even North America. And so, 
there's been a bit of a land grab here here recently over the last year and uh tamarack was one of the ones who picked up some large resource here earlier this year in that area and the first few wells um were quite good um but it was a lot of perceptions like well how far does your fairway exist like this looks like a lot of what we call moose pasture like just is there stuff there is it, is it not and um, the exploration wells that they've drilled here recently have all hit oil. And so now that you start to bookend all this land here with, yeah, this is all prospective for this, 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 uh, for oil. Um, that's where you should see that multiple lift. But once again, all these stocks have moved up with the price of the commodity, whereas, uh, some names should have also seen a multiple lift at the same time here too. So that's where, um, you know, watch for, you know, names like that to do, to continue to do well. Right. Um, and, and Jeremy, just to kind of wrap it up here at the beginning, you said that you, I think you've been doing this 18 years or so, I think. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> uh, what does it feel like today? I mean, just given the fact that we've, you know, we've, we've seen a lot of, um, you know, pain in the industry a number of years ago, it seems to feel a little bit better as these companies have right-sized themselves, sitting where you sit, uh, covering these companies. What's it like for you? What, how does it feel? What's the sentiment? The most optimistic I felt in, I can't remember a long time, maybe 2008. Like you're wow. going, going a long ways back here in terms of this is the amount of money that these companies are making um, with the right mentality now. Like let's not go suddenly spend a whole bunch of money. Let's make sure we're prudent with this. Let's not make the mistakes of last time. And I think maybe just a good way to end it is if you look at the tobacco industry back in 1997, 1998, when it was all this, you know, why would you invest in a tobacco company is because, you know, the amount of people that are smoking is going down, but um, tobacco companies from, I think I'm going to get these dates a little bit wrong, but from 1995 to 1999, tobacco companies had fallen about 75% that sector as, as a whole here, similar to energy here as well too like on average stocks are down 75 80 percent from where we were you know four or five years ago in 2014 so five six years similar time frame but tobacco was the best performing industry in the S&P 500 from 2000 to 2010 outperforming the S&P by a factor of tenfold as multiples expanded the companies focused on free cash flow paying down debt and um as everyone thought oil and like cigarette demand would go away Decline, but it didn't go away. And similar to oil, um, it's not going away tomorrow. It's not going away probably still for another, at least, I hate to pick timeframes here, but um, these companies are making some good money here right now. They're paying down debt, they're making profits, and the multiples still aren't reflecting the amount of mind shift that has happened with these companies here today. Perfect way to end it. <laughs> so, most optimistic since 2008 that you have been. Yes. That's awesome. Uh, Jeremy, great to speak with you and, and get caught up on your views. Uh, really appreciate it. This is a key area of interest for a lot of investors. So thank you. Well, thanks for having me, Catherine.